Today is November 19th, 2015, and this is Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience podcast. Today we have Patrick Sheets with us. Patrick is assistant professor of pharmacology and toxicology at Indiana University School of Medicine, South Bend, and Notre Dame University. University, University of Notre, Notre Dame. Dame. University I knew I'd get that back. <laughs> so <laughs> I got the rest of it right, though. Good. Uh, Patrick's work is on the brain circuits, uh, especially cortical microcircuits that, uh, and those in the amygdala that control stress, fear, and pain. Hmm. And lately, he's been studying specific cortical cell types that participate in a circuit consisting of prefrontal cortex, amygdala, periaqueductal gray, that form a big part of the brain's endogenous somatosensory pain control system. Welcome, Patrick. Hi, how are you? With us today... Uh, from uh, UTSA, Alfonso Apicella. Hi. Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. And me, I'm your host, Charlie Wilson. Patrick, I guess everybody knows from personal experience that our sensitivity to pain, include, especially somatosensory pain, I'm not going to talk about mental anguish, pain and anguish, but somatosensory painful stimuli is highly variable and depends enormously on our internal state at the time. And in our ordinary, everyday language, we usually attribute this to something that we call endorphins, but we really don't know what we're talking about when we say that. And um, what do we know, really, about the endogenous pain control system of the brain and the circuits that control it? Oh, first, uh, thank you for having me on. I forgot to say thank you. Um, yeah, so uh, typically, uh, when, we, when we talk about the endogenous system, uh, uh, it's a very primitive structure that's there to uh, really be turned on during the fight-or-flight response to suppress uh, any sort of painful stimulus that allows us uh, then to concentrate more on getting away from the threat uh, or the danger that, that uh, we're, we're facing. Uh, so there's been a lot of, a lot of work uh, historically uh, on midbrain circuits, presumably, as, as you mentioned, the paraqueductal gray has been a, a very hot topic uh, for a long time um, regarding endogenous analgesia. And uh, the main main focus is, is that there is uh, descending projections out of the paraqueductal gray that connect with the rostroventral medulla, which then can project down to the level of the spinal cord, uh, uh, specifically the dorsal horn, which can then inhibit sensory input coming in. And, and more specifically, there's there's lots of evidence to suggest that uh, the PAG is involved uh, specifically in inhibiting C-fiber input, so, so slow uh, nociceptive input and, and uh, preserving uh, large, large fiber input. So presumably it's to allow uh, pain for pain suppression, but not to uh, disrupt any other sensory information so that other function can can uh, take place normally. So those two, the the periaqueductal gray and the ventromedial rostral ventral ventral medial medulla, yeah. both of those also get the spinothalamic 
input. So they're already part of a loop, right? They're already part of a loop, yeah. And um, so presumably, uh, well, I, I, I weren't, I'm not clear as to how much the PAG receives. I know it receives some. Uh, so they are part of a loop. Uh, so presumably it's turned on, can be turned on very quickly, right, by the ascending of susceptible input. Uh, but as I as I uh, showed today, uh, the paraqueductal gray also has uh, a number of uh, subcortical, or sorry, uh, supraspinal inputs. Uh, that being the amygdala is one, and as I showed you, the medial prefrontal cortex uh, is another. So, so I'm just wondering about the sign of the loop. If you if you disconnected, yeah, uh, the more high order things, and you were left with just this brainstem loop, would it be a feed? A negative feedback pathway on pain, or being positive feedback? Pathway? Yeah, I mean that's a that's actually a very good question. Um, you know, you presumably would expect it to be uh, a negative feedback loop. I mean, you would assume that the ascending projections to these structures, which have been shown, especially when you stimulate them electrically or pharmacologically, that you induce um, uh, induce an analgesic state. Uh, so it's excited. The spinothalamic pathway is presumably excited. Excited, sorry, yeah. So and then the 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 austral ventral medial medulla pathway back is inhibitory to the spinal cord or back to the yeah to the yeah. So yeah. I would sort of expect a inhibitory right feedback. yeah. So I, I mean I um, unless the projections for some for whatever reason are are somehow targeting local inhibitory. Circuits within the paraqueductal Which gray. Which is a great theme because we're going to talk about that. In yeah, right. It's a, the things that are excitatory sometimes turn out to be inhibitory. Sometimes they are, yeah. Specifically to inner neurons. Exactly, yeah. And so we don't, we haven't done a lot of, at least in our lab, haven't done a lot of recording directly in the paraqueductal gray. Um, but it is known that there's incredible local, uh, local connections that play, uh, an important role in coordinating the output, uh, from the PAG down to the, to the RBM. So I want to get a, a, a thing like you said about um, the analgesia being part of the fight or flight kind of response. Right. Uh, and that's it. Presumably, especially if it's really uh, a, a large response, then, you know, you're hammering that system in terms of like the typical, you know, running away from the lion kind of thing. But <laughs> And presumably that doesn't necessarily depend on the cortex. I mean, that's kind of an old response, right? Right, that's true. So uh, maybe the, the, I just think maybe that the you have this uh, this control of pain in, uh, in the brainstem and various low-level kinds of things, and the way we would think, maybe think about the cortex is more like the mind over matter thing, where you decide, there are certain cases where you could should be able to decide to ignore pain mm. uh, or not. And then if it, you have some kind of higher level control of this other system, then you have to control it in a way that makes sense with the, all the complications of the positive and negative feedbacks of the lower system. Right. Uh, and so you, you have to deal with that. I don't know if it gets you so anywhere. Is fight or fight or flight a lower system or an upper system in your terminology? Lower. So where would that then come from? Where is the, so the PAG is not really a fight or flight. Center or is it? Does it, it so? Yeah, I mean, what we know is that when when it's stimulated, 
you you the behavior is such that reflects a fight or flight response. So you can you can get dramatic. It's you know it's been shown. Uh, so one example is in the cat, how a cat arches its back, puffs its tail. When you drive activity in the PAG, you can see this activity and the vocalization during stress, especially when a uh, the sound you hear when a cat is threatened is very low. You know, you can drive that with the PAG. So we think, at least in part. That, that circuit, whether or not it's filtering information coming from other structures, is sort of a node to integrate information. But there are also Whatever studies showing that the cortex plays a role in this behavior. Yeah, you know, I was about to say, how does the cat know that there's a threat if he's not using his cortex? Well, he may not, right? I mean, if you're stimulating it in in the absence of... So, I mean, one of the things that I feel uh, in the absence of a cortical input, if you're just stimulating the PAG, so we haven't found direct projection. From the PAG to the cortex, we we haven't we haven't looked, but we don't think there is one from the from the PAG to, to the cortex. Now, so you you could in essence turn this the PAG on without without the without the cortex knowing. And so you may have a cat that's that's sitting there making these responses, and and if a cat were able to think lucidly and explain to you, he would say, I, I don't know, I'm not sure why this is this is happening. Now, but, but normally, I mean, where do we normally, like rage, for example. Right. We think of that as amygdala or septicopia sure. or something like that, not, you know, not right. um, medulla. So, I mean, it's something, yeah, there's arguments that, you know, are these responses are you, I've heard called emoting, right? You're... Uh-huh. And and we really don't. There's no real c- cortical uh, input that influences it. But maybe that comes later. So one of the interesting things I always ask ask people is, uh, you know, if I increase your heart rate right now, or you know, in, in essence, you're going to have some emotional response to that. So in in most cases, you would assume that. Uh, you begin to feel anxious, right? I mean, your heart rate is is increasing. Now, that pathway of turning on heart rate and how that turns back up into potentially integrating information into the in the cortex, which leads to you having this anxious cognition. Um, no, I, it's it's a bit unclear, right? So the other part is you, this whole thing of my getting heart rate your is high. My blood pressure is low. Getting yourself worked I, up. It might be sick. Yes, you get yourself worked up. But the it's also quite, thing is too, like think about. You know, I tell you know, I I you know, I say something uh to Alfonso that the you know the R one funding is now at four percent. So his brain begins to start processing that, heart rate goes up, yeah. right? So that's sort of it's I will do that in the cortex. In the cortex, <laughs> yeah. So I mean it, it it's it's an auditory cortex to frontal cortex. And then um so I mean that's it's it's an interesting uh uh, theory. And so one of the things that uh, people are often given, if, if someone has a fear of uh, public speaking, uh, a lot of times what happens is uh, you can give them beta blockers. So people go on beta blockers, and because you're eliminating this increase in heart rate, then you, you, you don't have this, even if you're, even if you're cog- cognitively know you're going up to give a talk, and you know you're afraid without that associative These are peripheral beta blockers that don't get into the brain. I guess. Yeah. So right, it's that that don't get into the brain. You can actually help uh, decrease someone's anxiety, right? Because they don't have this associative autonomic response that normally 
comes with thinking about talking in front of large crowds, right? And so we also think about pain, right? Most pain has an incredible autonomic component associated with it. And as you mentioned in the beginning of the talk, or the, the introduction, I, I asked this to your students too. As I'm thinking about it going, you know, you've just won the lottery, right? You've won, a, you know, hopefully enough to fund your lab for the next 10 years, and you stub your toe, okay? And you may not be that upset. It'd be okay. But let's say you have a, had a horrible day. Your fifth R01 submission's been rejected, and you stub your toe. In theory, in theory, it's the same exact sensation coming in to the circuits, but completely different responses as far as... And it, and it could be autonomically as well, right? If you're angry, if you're already pre... I suppose maybe your heart rate's already up a little bit, you're going to have a much more dramatic response than if you're calm or elated or, or something of that nature, right? So it's very, very interesting to consider that the same sensory input, the same exact sensory input in two different modalities is going to have very, very different... And what effect. do you think about what is the role of the cortex? Right. So I don't, you know, that's something that is, um, given the fact that there has been a lot of studies done on cortex and mood disorders, right? Does it have, you know, I, and I, this is sort of getting outside of my knowledge base, but, you know, how much, what role does low or, or endogenous levels of, of cortical activity play in mood? Your, your, your moment to moment mood, right? And so if you're, if you're, you know, if cortex is, is dramatically, is in a state where it's going to be much more sensitive to a nociceptive input because of a, whatever you want to call it, a depressed mood or an anxious mood versus an elated mood. Okay. But I, yeah, I mean, I think that that may be not quite uh, You're saying that this, in this pain, it looks like that the cortex works like a knob. Potentially. Correct? That can have a kind of gain control. It has a possibility, yes. So, I mean, it has direct projections to the periaqueductal no. gray. Right. And so you can imagine that as at least not all cortex, but just what, prefrontal cortex. Prefrontal cortex. We, we, uh, Vanzo and I have some ideas that maybe the auditory cortex projects to the periaqueductal So it could be lots of parts of cortex. Could it, be lo- it could be a, lo- a lot of input coming in. But you've done this retrograde labeling experiment, so you have some notion about where that projections arise that mm-hmm. go to... Yes. So we've, we've looked at... We haven't looked across the cortex. So if you... You do see some in anterior cingulate cortex, prelimbic cortex, orbital frontal, infralimbic cortex... Uh, we did do some studies, uh, obviously Alfonso's a auditory cortex enthusiast, so uh, one day I just sliced all the way back to the auditory cortex and, and did see some layer 5 uh, uh, neurons lighting up from a retrograde injection into the PAG. However, uh, we were talking about this earlier, that because the PAG is very close to the inferior colliculus, you, you, you don't know whether or not we've got some spread over into the IC, which could then be what we're seeing. Uh, so we could potentially localize that a little bit better. But, I mean, it makes sense, potentially, um, if you were to, to think that, uh, especially in a fear-conditioning paradigm where you use a, a specific tone, right, does the auditory cortex also play some role in associating the tone with the proper... Yeah, but there's two ways of thinking about it. Maybe the 
Perry Aqueductal Gray is some kind of big integrating system. So if your mood is uh, affected by a lot of different things that happen to you, each one of which is being managed by a different part of the cortex, all of those cortical areas could converge on the periaqueductal gray, or they could converge on some cortical area that, produ- that goes to the periaqueductal gray. It seems to me your data are more in keeping with the second. The, a little bit, yes. I mean, uh, you know, we haven't we haven't looked in detail at other areas of the cortex. Uh, I did show some data today that would suggest that. Um, so what we do know is that the, there is the basolateral amygdala output. To the, to the PAG, or sorry, <coughs> pardon me, to the medial prefrontal cortex that does connect to PAG projecting neuron. And the amygdala goes directly to its PAG. Ah, right. And then you have a group of neurons in the central amygdala that project to the PAG. Right. Now, presumably, and it's been shown that the BLA can indirectly uh, control activity of these neurons. And as I showed you today, there's also projections from the medial prefrontal cortex that Obviously, we've, we've shown that we didn't show it in the, in the talk, but that, that drive activity of BLA neurons, which in turn polysynaptically inhibit, uh, central amygdala neurons. Now, the whole, the, the thing that we really, I didn't get into that much today, which I think is an incredibly important point, is the specific targeting within the paraqueductal gray. Because it's such a diverse and, uh, not only in dorsal ventral, but rostral caudal. You get very different different effects if you move along the rostral caudal axis of the paraqueductal gray. So it would be. So in fact, if you go, um, I think it's more um, caudally. You have more of a uh, a fleeing response. So actually, you have more of a motor uh, response as opposed to. I, I could be backwards on the rostral caudal. As opposed to more, that was more rostral and more caudal dorsally, it's more of a fighting, you know, you're going to stand your ground and fight. So that's at least what they've observed behaviorally in these animals. So there's a little bit of difference as far so as the dorsal. your behavioral options are mapped in the periaqueduct. There are way. some, yes. There's a behavioral output. you outputs. could just pick your spot. You could. And then uh, that's what you're going to do. So that's, so that's something that, that we want to start looking at, um, which we think would be interesting is to say, well, you know, if we went in and we we uh, put a adenovirus, channelopsin adenovirus, in the central amygdala, where exactly does that project? Is it all over the periaqueductal gray? Is it only in the ventral? Is it only in the dorsal? You know, we we don't know at this point. What we do know, and this is also some data um, that I'll show you, is that uh, that that uh, one of my students did is that. We actually put retrograde tracer in the dorsal and ventral, two different colors, and found that projection or that the retrograde tracing into the central amygdala were two exclusive populations of neurons, right? I mean, it wasn't as if you got double labeling. So there seems to be parallel exclusive populations of neurons in the central amygdala that project to the, the dorsal versus ventral. So if I went back to what I was just saying, Putting the virus in the central amygdala, presumably we would see axons in both dorsal and ventral. But, you know, whether or not that, so when we did the recordings of those two different classes of neurons, they were very similar. At least they didn't show any electrophysiological differences. Connectivity wise, we don't know. So does the medial prefrontal cortex or pathways in the BLA preferentially connect with ventral versus dorsal projecting PAG? PAG projecting neurons out of the central amygdala. 
So that's really what we we're still we're still very early in the in the process of dissecting this out of of exactly where in the you know what what is targeted in the PAG and if um, can we identify the classes of neurons within the PAG where their projection sites are. So for instance, if we were to inject the rostroventral medulla, presumably we would see. I mean, in fact, I'm pretty pretty confident. You would see the PAG light up like a Christmas tree. Okay, so can we begin parsing out? Well, do does the medial prefrontal cortex target RVM projecting neurons primarily in the dorsal versus the ventral? Can we parse out infralimbic versus prelimbic? And because you have such a, di- a diversity of responses, you can at least begin to understand how the circuitry is connected, and and begin to then say, okay. How can we... Oh, sorry, Alfonso. I'm still interested in what the cortex does, correct? If, to address this question... <laughs> we, a good question. ...would be the first thing that you should do. If you optogenetic drive cortical PAG in you, can you use a fear behavior? Have yeah. things done? Are you planning to do that? Well, so... I mean, there have been studies that have done it where they've electrically stimulated the prelimbic and infralimbic cortex and see the effects. Yes, I mean, there would be a way to do it with the optogenetic technology where presumably you could retrogradely infect the PFC, PAG pathway opted with, with channel rhodopsin, and then through various technology, most simple of which would be the uh, LED probe or LED uh, insertion into the medial prefrontal cortex and drive activity that way and see whether you can disrupt Obviously, I'm not a fear be- fear behavior guy, but could you potentially, if you were to injure the animal, and the animal is per- portraying a a, a uh, heightened sensitivity, mechanical allodynia, can you potentially drive uh, cortical PAG activity during various modes of testing to say, okay, now we have we're, we're testing the animal clearly has a decreased threshold for pain. And now we're going to turn on the cortical PAG, uh, cortical PAG pathway at the moment of, of our test, of the, of our, of our von Frey test mm-hmm. in the paw. Or maybe you, maybe you need to prime it. Maybe it needs to come beforehand. Some sort of a, you know, at this point, the sky would be the limit. We wouldn't really, we wouldn't know until we got in there and began driving, driving that, that particular pathway. And as, as, as Matt, uh, as Matt brought up today, I has no last name. Wanna? Yeah. Um, what if you obliterate this pathway? Right? I mean, I thought that was an excellent, excellent uh, uh, suggestion. You know, you eliminate the pathway. Uh, one, can you still observe pain behavior in these animals? Is it necessary? For the animal to display. Yeah, this is what be a, you know, this is what I'm thinking. This is what it means by what's the cortex. Yeah. Right, what's the cortex. Yeah, exactly. Now, so the other thing that I think would be, also be interesting, and I don't know how effective it would be, uh, and I showed you today in my, in my talk that, you know, can you, can you drive, uh, the BLA axon behavior in vivo in the medial prefrontal cortex? So, you know, Presumably, you could you could put the put the virus in the BLA, wait for the axonal expression of channel rhodopsin in the medial prefrontal cortex, and perform the same experiment by driving BLA activity in the medial prefrontal cortex. Now, that doesn't 
that doesn't necessarily or it doesn't at all implicate the cortical PAG pathway, but it would at least indicate that we do know that the BLA connects to CP neuron. So at least in part, the behavior you would observe, if there's any change in that behavior, should at least have some mode of CP output affecting or affecting that change in behavior. And as I showed you today, it could be incredibly different. So that's the difficult part of these type of experiments is that driving behavior via optogenetics in the prelimbic cortex versus the inverlimbic cortex, you know, uh, sorry, BLA axon activity, the intracortical activity is going to be very different. It's not just like, okay, we're turning on layer 5 here and layer 5 here in the same same type of mechanism. It would be very different based on the differential targeting of the BLA to those different regions. So there's a, another uh, way of thinking about it, and that is, you mentioned it just now, and that is chronic pain changes the sensitivity to pain. And this is could be thought of as something that wouldn't even require the cortex. It might just be part of that low-level loop between the pain fibers and the periaqueductal gray, but apparently not. Apparently, that even that um, hypersensitivity during chronic with chronic pain is is driven through the cortex. Or is that what? You- yeah, I mean, so I think what my, when I what I failed to mention earlier uh, is. Uh, that pain is multidimensional, right? So, I mean, you have the sensory component, the actual peripheral neurons bringing the, the pain sensation up the level of the spinal cord to the brain, but you also have the affective component, which is what we could consider to be the unpleasantness, right? So there's a reason, I mean, I truly believe, obviously, that, that uh, the incredible comorbidity of chronic pain and depression or anxiety because these, we believe that these medial prefrontal cortex uh, circuits are changing over time with chronic pain, could be the reason for this overlap in in these comorbidities of depression and, and chronic pain. Now, so what do you mean? Do you mean by that you mean I have a lot of pain, therefore I get depressed, and therefore I'm more sensitive to brain? Potentially, right? I mean, so it could be this very, very unforgiving positive feedback loop. So you figure that again, this comes back to your your your, your mood. Right, that, how that it can affect your pain sensitivity, or at least your reaction to pain, or at least the cognitive component of how you feel about it. Let's say. So, if someone is clinically depressed, that hasn't hasn't been induced by by some chronic pain state. There's evidence to suggest that those people have lower pain thresholds, right? Is it as much as people who really have neuropathic pain or something? Yeah, so I don't know how to, I don't know if that can, I don't know if that's been quantified. I mean, that would be an interesting, uh, if that literature's out there, I haven't, I haven't read it extensively, but. Because we often think about pain sensitization as having a, you know, spinal cord component or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yes, exactly. But, you know, you, you have to, you have to imagine that, you know, and I also I often use this example, um, that, uh, you know, if all of us were to, to have a, a similar pain input, and let's say we, let's say somehow we leveled the playing field and we excited the same number of, of since 50 C fibers in your arm that hasn't had a prior injury, right? Presumably all four of us would have a very different affect of that particular input, right? And so if you're, it's just that, how would you, you would assume? It? Oh, sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I mean, so you, 
So you would assume not only is it the state that you're in at the moment, but it also has to do with, you know, let's say, uh, you know, for instance, that you've experienced chronic pain your entire life, right? Maybe not in a particular area I'm going to stimulate, but you have sort of this priming of, of the cord, you know, whether it be through the cortex or not, you have a priming of the circuitry where now your emotional reaction is going to be much different than than mine or, or anyone else's. Right? I mean, so, and, and presumably that's what people want treated, in, in, in my mind, right? You could take, you know, like I said in the in the in the seminar, if I if you had a pain, let's say you were having chronic pain, and I say I will leave, I'll leave the sensation, but I'll take away your unpleasantness, or I will I will remove the the sensation and keep your level of unpleasantness. I would assume that nine out of ten people would say I, I would maybe ten out of ten no I'd leave the sensation. Take my unpleasantness. So if away. you stimulate the periaqueductal gray, is that what you get? The sensation still there, but the feeling is potentially right. I mean, so that's something right that, that you at least in the periaqueductal gray, you presumably you you would have the descending inhibition of the sensation, right? But you know, do you are you circumventing the effective component by not communicating somehow with the cortex? Right. I mean, I don't. I couldn't. I couldn't give you that answer. I don't know if anyone's ever had. I don't think there are any humans. Basically, at some point, you are going to disentangle this, probably correct. You are going to know what the cortex does and what the periaqueductal gray. Then you can address the question. You say you want the unpleasant or the pain. Yeah. These are the two things that so you. So, never so, so you wonder. So you've never done analgesia by simulating somebody's periaqueductal. Ah, so they have done. I, there, there have been studies that have been shown, but they also said that people. Uh, they, uh, and I, and I believe, gosh, I, the name escapes me, that they have done a stimulation and where people, they, uh, some are good, some have analgesic, uh, effects and others have anxiousness. They sort of feel. They got stimulated in the wrong spot. Potentially in the wrong spot. Yeah. So, uh, and as I, as I mentioned before, there have been animal studies where you can actually do surgical procedures without anesthetic, but just by stimulating the practice. So if we think about the analgesics that we, that we know about, mm -hmm. right? Oh, uh, opiates. Morphine, yeah. So how would you describe that? Is that the person still feels it, but they, it doesn't bother them, or is that? The, I think that that's, I think that has something, definitely has something to do with it. Um, the the thought is is that the pharmacologic target for opioids is in the midbrain is in this analgesic descending circuit. Um, so I mean I recently had surgery where I had to have have opioids and the sensation was still there. I mean it's hard to say right because because pain is so subjective. If you're feeling it, right? If the sensation is still there, but you don't you don't uh, recognize it as a painful stimulus, is it really pain? The signal may be very similar. I mean, the signal as a, as a, as a, as an objective pain signal is still there. But if you don't recognize it as such, is it really pain? Uh, you know, no, I would say no, because if your pain rating went from a 10 to a 1, then you have an analgesic effect, even if you're not really affecting the sensation. Itself. So maybe it's not something we can actually know, but whether the sensation goes away and just doesn't hurt anymore, or whether the, Right. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of a, it's a, I mean, I remember take, I remember, I, I don't even remember what, what the drug is, some form of morphine and sitting there and, 
and saying, you know, I'm a little sore, but I don't really care. Right? The problem is that the person you're talking to at that point is stoned. Uh-huh, yeah, right. well, it's potentially that it's too, right? You yeah, you can't give you a really good reason, or or they don't remember in the morning why they felt that way. But I mean, it's it, and uh, you know what what I think is interesting, and I and there's a I, I recently had. Uh, uh, Brad Taylor from Kentucky, he came and gave a talk. I don't know if you know Brad. He was in Alan uh, Basbaum's lab. And he's got a really fascinating story um, where he shows that if you give an animal an inflammatory insult in the hindpaw, that the animal shows uh, a allodyni- allodynic response to, to von Freiherr to heat. Means they resp- they, they have a they have a they have a they have a lower threshold to pain as as you would expect right, and then if you allow the animal to recover, it recovers back to where it has a normal normal pain behavior. Okay, so over time you can keep testing the animal and it and it's fine. So you know you think okay nothing of it. If you introduce naloxone to the animal uh, and don't re-injure it, don't re-injure the animal at all, that pain behavior reemerges. Just giving naloxone, just blocking opioid activity. So one of his one of one of Brad's theories, which I think is is a very intriguing one, is that when you have an injury during the healing process, which involves the suppression of pain, that your body in some way turn endogenously turns on your opioid system that just stays on. It stays on in this particular pathway. And if you block it and you turn it off, then that particular uh, the site of the injury now has this reemergence of pain. So he showed this, and he showed it's not, it's specific, right? You do in the other Paul, nothing. It's not like a global effect, right? So there is this, there is this idea that there are these, these, this, this prolonged change that somehow your body can turn these circuits on and keep things going. Now, whether or not there's a cortical aspect to that, I don't know, right? Do you have some, as I showed you today, Right, I showed today that you have this increase in uh, in firing over time in PAG projecting neurons in the cortex, right? And whether or not that's prolonged. So the one thing your student asked, very good question today, is that you know we see differences in the CP neurons and in medial prefrontal cortex after the injury, right? But if you allow the animal to recover, what if you allow the pain behavior to subside? Do you still see this prolonged? But you still see this increase in excitability in the medial prefrontal cortex. Right? And if you did, if you did see it, right, even after the injury is gone, that could have some indication on, on playing some sort of role in uh, suppressing the pain behavior that's associated with, with wound healing. Right? So you're, you're projecting down to the paraqueductal gray, having this opioid effect that's, that's driving the suppression of pain. Now that's a long shot because because uh, Brad also showed that that this effect is due to constitutive act, constitutively active opioid receptors. So this is happening in the absence of opioids and endogenous opioids. So it was a good idea. It was still a good idea. Genius. Yeah. The students have got a, they have a, they they ask very very good questions. In fact, one of the students, uh, you know, is said she said uh, some some pain, chronic pain in the past, so she was very interested in this and interested in opioid and, uh, opioid pathways and uh, nothing like a little pain to get the graduate students. Every like yeah, nothing like yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I would, the 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 thing that really intrigues me, uh, I told the students is that. 
when you look at, if you want to call it a disease, even though it's a very, it's a natural process, everyone must have it, is that pain is the one thing with the exception of a very, very small population of, of people that everyone, everyone experiences. Everyone. And in most cases, pain is what everyone hopes to avoid at, at, at some point. So, you know, it, it, it's just, it, it's, it's fascinating to me that you think this is one of the main reasons people go to the doctor. It's one of the main reasons, one of the one things people don't want to have when the time is near to, to leave this earth, right? You, you want to go out without any pain. And so really it's, the hopeful thing is that we, we really start to, to understand, uh, you know, how chronic pain states or just normal pain transmission in general. Uh, affects the supraspinal circuitry that, that's involved in, in mood or, or if you want to be even a little bit more hand waving about it, well being, right? Just your overall well being. And talking to Alfonso, uh, earlier, uh, today, we also, we were talking a little bit about, uh, you know, how sometimes pain can be pleasurable, especially with lifting weights or exercising, oh, or that sort of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, so, I mean, it has this, it's, it's just a very, complex and interesting necessary phenomenon that um you know the peripheral the peripheral mechanisms are have been very very well studied right this inflammatory mediator sensitizes the c fiber which then is going to increase firing to the spinal cord and so on and so forth but how it's how it's really processed uh in the in in the supraspinal circuitry uh, uh, north of the spinal cord uh there's been there's been many many uh, uh, studies that have shown changes, but as far as really breaking down the organization and breaking down specific changes that are due to uh, acute pain, inflammatory pain, acute pain, chronic pain, inflammatory pain, neuropathic pain, we really don't know a whole lot as far as the specific changes in the circuitry surrounding these three. MPFC, amygdala, and paracordial growth. Okay, well, hopefully that's going to change. Hopefully that, hopefully that's going to change. There's been some great, there's been some great, uh, there's some good stuff coming out. Uh, there's been a lot of work in the amygdala. I know that uh, there's quite a few people doing uh, pain in the amygdala, and we're hoping that uh, uh, we can make some more advances in the in the cortex, especially the connection down to the PAG. Thank you, Patrick. Oh, thank you very much. And Alfonso and Todd. Yeah. All right. Thank you. This has been No Scientist Talk Show.